Uh, last week, as you know, you commenced this series on what we can learn from the past. And now we're coming to this passage in Judges that was read to us, which tells us that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Um, and after his death, uh, things truly went pear-shaped. And one verse in that passage says, The Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. They followed and worshipped the gods of the peoples around them. The word Baal, by the way, is a generic word which talks about all the heathen gods in that part of the world. So, because of their willful disobedience, the Lord sent them judges, people like Gideon and um, uh, others. And for a while, as um, Elaine explained to us, they, they listened to these judges and then they went back to their evil ways again. The important thing, however, um, as far as we are concerned, is what does this have to say to our generation? What does this have to say in 2018? And that's what I want to talk to you about now. On February the 21st, the evangelist Billy Graham died. A man who probably had more influence um, on the second half of the 20th century than probably any other person. In every continent of the world, uh, thousands upon thousands of people came to faith in Jesus because of his faithful preaching of the gospel. And wherever you go in the world, you will find pastors, evangelists and missionaries who came to faith through his faithful preaching. And I am among them. On May the 20th, 1954, in the City Hall, Sheffield, in what was then called a relay meeting, no visuals then, just audio, I listened to Billy Graham, and at the age of 12 and a half, you work out my age now if you're good at arithmetic, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. But... While Billy Graham, humble as he was, would not in any sense want to compare himself to Joshua, I find that the comparison there, for reasons I will explain, are very, very challenging. Joshua, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. People are living longer today. I've, it's been a, um, a week of people I know dying this week. The funeral of a colleague in Salisbury on Thursday. Uh, yesterday I got a messenger to say someone in a church in Hereford I knew died. And just before I left tonight I get yet another message to say someone else in their 90s has died. And the lady who contacted me yesterday about her husband said she was nursing uh, two of her aunts, 108 and 110. Well, Joshua's 110. Uh, Billy Graham died at the age of 99. 
But sadly, what happened to the nation of Israel following Joshua's death, as also in many respects happened to our nation since Billy Graham um, went worldwide with what he called, you wouldn't use this term today for obvious reasons, is evangelistic crusades. They're called missions or festivals today. Um, But since then, when hundreds upon hundreds of young people came to faith in Jesus, um, our nation has become much more secular, much more godless. So I want us to think tonight of some of the reasons why that has happened. Uh, Coming toward the end of his life, Joshua said this to the Israelites. It's not in the passage we read, but it's integral to it. He said, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers who served beyond the river, that was in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But... On what a but. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, In more senses than she has realised, some of the comments from uh, Jan tonight and the pieces that she has chosen are very appropriate to what I'm going to say. Sadly, that warning of Joshua's was not heeded, and the Israelites, as we have said, did serve other gods, much of what we see happening today. Chief among those modern-day gods here in the West is the god of materialism. And I'm going to be talking more about that in a moment. But other less obvious forces are at work eroding our Christian heritage. Uh, Along with materialism, there is uh, pressure in the area of morals. Uh, There is a growing spiritual indifference. And there are issues within the home. Less and less people see their need for the relevance of God in their life and are making, making spiritual matters a priority. It's not important. It doesn't matter. Consequently, here in the West, uh, people may have plenty to live with, but they have little to live for. I I thought I'd try and do what Premier Praise suggested I do, and I went on Siri on my um, iPhone, and I asked them what the meaning of life was. They came up with some scientific reasons tonight, but when I did it the other day, they referred me to Alpha. (laughs) so there you go but the meaning of life is less clear for people so in the face of all this we as Christians must be more resolute than ever in saying as for me and my house we will serve the Lord and that has a challenge for churches as well now it's I don't want to be I don't want to sound all negative tonight and it's good to think more positively about what is happening. Largely because of ethnic growth, but not exclusively, uh, there are in fact some very large uh, churches today 
in some of our major cities um, where they are attracting hundreds of young people. Uh, we should also be grateful for what's happening in the Anglican Communion where um, 85% of their training pastors are evangelicals. At the funeral we went to the other day um, in Salisbury, uh, the rector who did the funeral beautifully, um, he, I, I went to thank him afterwards and he apologised for the formality of the service. And I said, I thought you did it beautifully. And he said, well, he said, I'm very informal on Sunday. I don't even wear a dog collar. And there he was worshipping the Lord with his hands up. It was just beautiful, wasn't it? The worship group, everything. So we should thank God for these things. We should also thank God that because of United Bible Weeks, Soul Survivor, Alpha and other such things, um, we are less insular in our thinking today. A lot less insular. And we, we've finally grown up and recognised that there are Christians in other denominations. And some of us try and keep tolerant, like Chris and I have decided to go to the big church day out today. I don't know whether the music will blow us away, but it's good, isn't it, that Christians are mixing together. These are all positive things. Another thing we should thank God for are the lovely songs that are being written today. In the days of the Wesleyan revival, great hymns were written, some of which we still sing today. But now we have songs by Matt Redman, by Tim Hughes, by Keith and Christian Getty, uh, and many others that express, I think, so beautifully our faith. I was preaching last week in Burton, and I put on, at the end of my sermon, a clip from Chris, Christian, Christi, I don't, Christian Greta, it's spelt with a K. And beautiful, absolutely beautiful words that express our faith so well. But there are other factors of more concern. So I want to mention five things that we should pray into individually and as a church. The first thing is what I've called the pace of life. Okay? The pace of life. As the population increases and technology advances, life is supposed to get easier. But for many, it has actually the opposite effect. Um, anyone like Andrew will tell you how many emails he gets a day. And uh, I, I get dozens. And it, it just increases your workload all the time. Uh, mobile phones, tablets, computers designed to save us time but in some cases those technical advances actually give us more work. People expect instant answers to emails and quick deliveries for what they order online. And if it isn't prime delivery that's next day delivery, then it's a poor delivery, never to be used again. I was so amused the other day that Mark Zuckerberg's account on Facebook was someone jammed into it. But these are the pressures we face today. Even modern cars, which are more reliable, 
can be a point of friction with paying for the vehicle. Vehicle servicing, Jan, you know all about that, don't you? You do, yeah. Uh, Repair bills, traffic jams, accidents, and all the rest of it. Just a few examples of what I mean. Life is like a roundabout. It seems to be spinning faster and faster and faster. We want to get off it because we feel dizzy, but try as we may, we can't get off it. So what happens in that hectic schedule, family members actually become at times strangers in their own home. We had some American young people stopping with us, two young ladies once, and we asked them what surprised us most about the UK. Do you know what she said? One of the young ladies said to her, she said, you eat together. You eat together. She said, we never eat together at home now. Just fast food all the time. So, in contrast to the rural life of yesteryear, many things are no longer done together. The simple joys of life have evaded us. So, actually, in a very subtle way, the fabric of life begins to unravel. And it actually affects us as Christians. Secondly, another assault that we face today is the rise of materialism. The rise of materialism. This is the everyone has it society, so we must have it. So people fill their homes with gadgets, the latest ultra-definition TV, an upgraded PC, a new carpet, and in some cases, these homes filled with gadgets are empty of happiness. And yet, what pressure we do face today to buy these things, not only because other people have them, but pressures from the manufacturers with endless sales because they're desperate to sell us their goods. People are made to... uh, sound behind the times or below standard if they don't get these things. Chris and I went to see a Tudor house yesterday. We're in the National Trust. The most fascinating visit. This house went back to 1504. Hadn't got proper foundations. It it looks as if it's about to fall down any minute. Um, But they said that when they built that house, the fire was literally literally in the middle of the earthen floor. It wasn't even a stone floor. Glass had not even been invented. And to talk about the toilets, my goodness me, they just threw it out of the window. Now, none of us, of course, none of us would want to go back to that. We, 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 we thank God for some of the things that we have in the 21st century that were once considered a luxury are now considered as norm. But what is important is our priorities and our motives for having these things. And that's why this word from Jesus is so important. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed for a man or woman's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. A third assault on Christian beliefs and practices today is the mobility of labour. I pastored a city church in Coventry and the congregation changed in five years. Simply because there were a lot of professional people there 
and they're moving on all the time with their work. In the UK, people move homes on average every five to six years. And you're doing it tomorrow. Well, there you go. We will. But that means that annually, millions of families have to start uh, in a new environment, a new school, a new job, a new church, and so on. So, for some, including Christians, it becomes very, very difficult to put roots down. There's a tendency, actually, to avoid strong personal commitments and involvement. You see, we may not be around for too long, so we better not get too involved. So, consequently, without those commitments, there's no sense of where home is, or where it ever was. But without a fixed place to call home, without permanent relationships on which to depend, without a sense of loyalty, then we tend to drift. And without a church, and without a community, then people tend to live primarily for themselves. We call it individualism. Let me tell you, if you're not already aware of it, anyone in leadership will be aware of it, individualism can affect families and can affect churches. So, commitments begin to break down. We just do our own thing. Nightclubs, there aren't as many nightclubs today. And it's partially because people do it at home now. Fourthly, um, and I, I want to talk a little more about this because I, I, I see this as being uh, so important. Not, that's not important, but the principle behind it is important. The erosion of marriage. Sorry, I spelled that wrong. It should be I-A-N. Um, after creating man, he observed that it was not good for him to be alone. Have I spelled that correctly? Oh, oh I've got it incorrect on here, sorry. I've done well. My wife is the spell checker, you see. <laughs> okay. Uh, God said it's not good for man to be alone. So he provided a lady, and in joining to them together, he pronounced that the union was very good. And in the New Testament, Jesus underscored that it was God who seals marriage, and he said, therefore whom God has joined together, let not man divide. But you don't need me to tell you, today's society has flagrantly disregarded that explicit command. And our country has one of the highest divorce rates in the Western world. Almost one in, the last statistic I read is that one in two marriages will end in divorce. And every day in Britain, 500 couples are divorced. Now this, please, this is not to pass judgment on any of you if you have found yourself in that situation. But what I am saying now is that this breakdown of marriage 
is something that should deeply concern us all. Happy marriage, of course, begins in the first place with finding the right partner. Uh, So this is something, in my view, that we need to preach far more in our churches. We need to teach our young people what it means to have the right relationships. A Russian proverb says, before embarking on a journey, pray once. Before leaving for war, pray twice. But before you marry, pray three times. There's also um, an Arabian proverb which is even more explicit. Choose your horse from a hundred, your friend from a thousand, but your wife from ten thousand. Did you hear that, Malcolm? Marriage is a serious business, of course, and to quote the marriage service, it must not be entered into carelessly, lightly or selfishly, but reverently, responsibly, and only after serious thought. It involves a lifelong journey with one partner. So obviously, careful thought should be given, and we need to pray, don't you agree? We need to pray for the young people in our church, that they'll find the right partners, Sadly, many couples today marry without any real sense of commitment that their future lives together will require. Um, I think it would be, it's the height of naivety. I don't think I know. It's the height of naivety to say this doesn't affect Christian young people. It does. Uh, Modern day morality and marital commitment spills over in the church. And pastors have to deal with this issue more and more and more. You see, marriage, I'm telling you what you know, marriage is never an accident, it's always an achievement. In other words, it's got to be worked at. So each partner brings to a union uh, something that's important. We talk about finding the right person. I used to tell couples that being the right person, once you are married, is more important. That's why, it's surprising this, but actually arranged marriages often last longer because they are the right person in the partnership. And what we must understand as far as God is concerned, that the commitment of a husband and a wife to one another is a sacred covenant. It's not just a civil or a social arrangement for the convenience of two people. Spiritually, it is God making man and woman one. And throughout the Bible, it's regarded as a vital human relationship and we mess with it to our peril. And there is, in fact, no such thing as single-sex marriage. Forgive my being so blunt. The Scriptures are adamant on that. But today, many people are denying or decrying the need for that commitment. They're saying that it doesn't matter, it's out of place in the society in which we live. The theory is that there must be total freedom, so each partner can, and I quote, genuinely discover themselves, whatever that may mean. And they should choose to live together. Uh, For instance, one suggestion is that marriage should be a contract for three to five years, after which it can be renewed 
if the partners feel the same about one another, or alternatively, it can be dissolved. So people claim that commitment in a traditional sense will only lead to problems, will only deny freedom. So the criteria of a marriage and keeping a family together is whether at present is it, is, is it a satisfactory relationship. That's all that seems to matter. But that kind of attitude, of course, gives marriage and the family no permanence, no stability. And you, you only know, Jan, Mark and, and Will, when you go out the street pastoring, uh, you, you get people who don't know who their father is, they don't know who their mother is, they're messed up in their minds. And what we see happening in marriage today is now beginning to happen in other areas of society, including the church. People choose to miss a Sunday service because it's a nice day. I mean, for goodness sake, two hours in a 168-hour week. Is that asking too much? Or they choose to miss sleep because they want to sleep in. Unless, of course, you're ill as you were this morning. That's a different matter. Rather than believing that being at church should be their priority. And I'm not just speaking as a pastor. There is, of course, no way of guaranteeing that everyone who gets married will always be happy. And uh, I hate the judgmentalism of the past. And I have married divorced people. Any more than we can guarantee that the church we go to will always be happy in. Sometimes husbands and wives or people in our church will annoy us. Sometimes there will be difficulties to work through. But the modern trend in which people move from one union to another union or leave one church for another church to find happiness is a delusion and it's a lie and it nearly always ends up unless there are legitimate reasons for people moving to people being a spiritual shipwreck. It leads to pain, it leads to heartache, it leads to misery. So as Christians pressurised as we are by these influences and perhaps feeling the effect of it in terms of our own commitment, we must resolve to put God first in our lives. First in our friendships, first in our marriage, and first in our church commitment. A fifth and final assault on the world today is what I've called challenges in the home. Keeping the balance between the church and family life is not easy at times. One of the most pointed scriptures in the Bible, especially for leaders, is found in 1 Timothy 3 verse 5. It concerns Christian leaders, but it's also something to say to every one of us. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? That doesn't mean we should have perfect children, far from. Billy Graham, who I mentioned earlier, has one regret, had one regret in his life, that he was away from home too much. 
He had three. He has three daughters, one of whom I've met, Anne, and he's got two sons. One of the daughters, the eldest, Gigi or Gigi, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, she married at the age, in fact they were all married at the age of 18, the daughters. She married at the age of 18 to a man she said I didn't really love. She ended up, after having had seven children, divorced. Ruth, one of the other daughters, had three broken marriages. At teens, both of the boys rebelled. Ned openly admits that he used marijuana and other drugs. And Franklin Graham, who's now an evangelist in his own right, said, and I quote, I was rebelling against God. I just wanted to have fun. But through their prayers, thank God, despite Billy Graham being away so much that he regretted, all four, five children are now in active Christian ministry. So please, please understand, none of us get it right all the time. None of us are perfect parents with our children following our Christian example. Of course not. But our homes, as far as possible, back to that reading from Deuteronomy, should be a refuge, a shelter, a place of sanctuary from the evils of the world. For after all, uh, if our kids can't find protection and strength there, where can it be found? Yet, sadly, this can break down when Christian principles cease to function. It was different for Joshua in the Old Testament. He was God's man as the home, in the home, as well as he was God's man in the field of service. He led Israel into the promised land, but he also pledged that his own family would serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, what are we like in our homes? With the mask taken off, what are we really like? If Christianity is to work anywhere, then it's got to work there. So our attitudes and our actions have got to be consistent. And if they're substantially different to how we are when we put on a face in church, then there's something wrong. The Word of God is full of references to homes and families. So by the frequency of these verses, we know how important family is. Let me just quote two. Psalm 127. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. In fact, one verse says, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And Simon at Couture told me he'd got six kids. So there you go. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. A good wife, not just say, listen to this, a good wife is depicted as having value above rubies. Her children should arise and call her blessed and her husband also praises her. Now how about that? 
Perhaps some of you ladies think it would be a miracle if your husband did praise you, but if you're a good wife, he should. So thank you, sweetheart. (laughs) Throughout the Bible, positive and joyful family relationships are spoken of as being the norm for homes founded on God's principles. So to conclude, Israel turned its back on Joshua, who before his death said, Now fear the Lord and serve him with faithfulness. Learning from the past, let's make sure that whatever pressures we face, the pace of life, the rise of materialism, the mobility of labour, the erosion of marriage, challenges in the home, and other things I could mention, we do not make the same mistake ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a challenge to us individually. It's a challenge not only to Christian parents here, but it's a challenge to those who never had children to pray for families. It's a challenge to the Sunday school teachers in this church. It's a challenge to those of us who preach the Word of God. It's a challenge to those of us who have involvement with young people. It's a challenge, Lord, for consistency in our life and a lack of hypocrisy. It's a challenge, Lord, to stand up for what is right, not in a judgmental, proud way, but abiding by the abiding principles of the Word of God. Would you help us to do that individually? Would you help this church to do that? Would you guide them in their future? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.